What causes people to get involved in extremist groups? What prompts them to leave and what are the challenges they encounter when they do? Above all, what are the best ways of countering hate in our communities and our politics? We put all these questions and more to Hadia Masia, a former member of an extremist group who's now a pioneer in counter-radicalization. Welcome to the Larger Us podcast, the show that's about how we can become a larger us rather than a them and us by working at the places where our states of mind and the state of the world meet. With me, Alex Evans. Find out more about Larger Us's work and how you can get involved at larger.us. So hi, and welcome to the very first edition of the Larger Us podcast. This is kind of an experiment to try it out, so we'd love to hear your feedback on what works, what could be better, and what else you'd like to hear on the show, including people you'd like to hear us talk to. You can reach us at hello at larger.us or find us on Twitter at Larger Us Network. We're delighted that our first guest on the show is Hadia Masia. Hadia has an extraordinary story. From attending a Quaker school as a child to becoming a member of the now banned Islamist group Hizbut Tahrir at university, from leaving the group after the 7 7 bombings in 2005 to her work today, which includes advising the mayor of London on policing, helping to de radicalise ISIS recruits returning from Syria, and running her own organisation, Groundswell Project. I began by asking Hadia about what she wanted to be when she grew up and whether she imagined then that she'd be doing the kind of work that she's doing today. <laughs> what did I, I always wanted to be Lady Diana. I used to remember saying that. I always really could connect with other human beings. I was like the agony aunt in a way at school. I always wanted to do something around counselling and I was quite an empathetic person and I was really affected by things that I saw around me. And then coming from a, a Quaker background, you don't realise it, but it is an emphasis on peace building. It's an emphasis on friendships. And I was just saying earlier that I joined the Amnesty International Club at 11. And I realised that's not actually that normal to do. But it was at the time. And um, the issues around humanity, injustice, those thoughts were seeping into my mind from an early age. And was that idealism part of what led you to become first involved in Hizbut Tahrir when you were at university? Well, the funny thing is, um, as I was growing up, I was always interested in religion. And I actually grew up as a Hindu. And then I converted to Islam. And I just, you know, made that transition from in a very spiritual way. And it wasn't any type of hatred. It was just a, a calling and a, a something that I was called to. And I, you know, it was a very spiritual experience. So I kind of changed my religion, which from a Hindu background, it's, you know, not the best thing to do. Um, a lot of people don't know that I, I was quite an extremist as a Hindu as well. Um, I used to believe in, in Hindutva. I was quite anti-Muslim. And then the more I learned about Islam, I realized that it, all of the negativity that was around, it wasn't justified. And, and I happened to convert to Islam. But that's where you are vulnerable when you come new into a faith, new into a religion. Your parents and your family are not very keen on what's happened. You kind of lose them. I was ostracized by my family for quite a while. And then that's where the vulnerability was with myself. And that's where I fell into the hands of extremists who showed me that identity, the um, belonging, the friendship, you know, everything I was lacking 
I was shown that and also what they were saying around creating justice and solving the world's problems was a little bit of music to my ears or something familiar, something that was already part of my, you know, makeup. So it's a sort of mixture of the idealism and the relationships and the kind of belonging and then also a sense of sort of agency about big global issues. Yeah, it fit everything in, in my mindset. Like, okay, these guys seem very pious and religious. I need to find out about my faith. They also talking about politics and um, injustices in the world, which is something that I'm interested in. And they were young people like myself, so I could relate to them as well. And yeah. it was a non-violent organisation as well. They didn't promote violence. They were more around ideology. Right. But they were able to feed me their version of Islam. If you look at the people who join extremist groups, a lot of them are converts. And tell us about the, the process of leaving. What began the kind of the process of your exit from Hizbut Tahrir? Well, as I said, I, was, I, I belonged to the group for a, a while and I was very much around a belief that we could create a utopia, bring back, you know, um, Islamic way of life, you know, in, in the footsteps of like, Bernarda and um, Andalusia and all of the, you know, the, the the golden era of philosophy and inventions. And, you know, I had that kind of utopia idea that we could get it back because of what I was seeing in the world, like, you know, puppet regimes, a lot of human suffering was happening in the Islamic world. And, and that affected me. And it just felt, I felt like this, this utopia could be attained. So yeah, imagine that this is someone who's believed in in this utopian idealism for so long, and then slowly, slowly it starts chipping away when you realise, oh, it's not as perfect as I thought it was. You you get, you know, I was growing up as well as maturing as an adult, as a human being, and realising that um, the people who were part of this, you know, weren't as perfect as I thought they would be. Like, you know, you, you almost idealised them, and then they do stuff, and you're like, actually, that is really not nice or it's not on or your behaviors you know not this perfect you know utopia thing that i i believed in yeah. and can you give us an example like um just the the infighting you know you find all of these a lot of even far-right groups there's a lot of infighting and negativity a lot yeah. of negativity in the way they speak about one another and and the hatred that they have towards each other in the world it was just this negative mm. ideas and um you know, I, I left after, you know, I had my third child and, you know, on the TV at that moment was, um, you know, the aftermath of 7-7 bombings. And then on the 22nd of July, there was another bombing and that's when my son was born. And it was all kind of like another spiritual moment for me where like, oh my God, I hope that I'm not associated with that in any way because that's not what I want. That's not what I was calling for. And when I look deep and then ask those questions, I realize that this is something I shouldn't be doing or shouldn't be part of. It's a bit like a realization moment. And I'd come out of a coma and I'd realized, oh my God, what have I been doing for the past 10 years? And I yeah. think I need to come out of this. Was it was it hard to leave? Because I mean, I, it's clear from what you're saying that you know um, you were becoming disillusioned with the kind of infighting, as you say, and the inconsistency between some of the stated ideals and then how that was sort of playing out in reality. But you've also alluded to how at the beginning it gave you a sort of set of relationships and a sense of belonging. Um, and was that hard to leave behind? And did you did you have sort of alternative networks that were going to take up the slack and giving you the sense of belonging? No, I was completely on my own at that point. 
it's like I'd spent 10 years, made a lot of relationships. They were my family. And then all of a sudden, nothing. So I had people were told not to speak to me. People were told not to engage with me. Um, and it was very funny because the, the, the next thing I wanted to do was join a Jewish interfaith organization. <laughs> like that's, I was like, I, I need to go and do the opposite. It was, it's a very strange experience. I, I can't explain it completely to the fullest extent. So yeah, that was, it was difficult, but I kind of like went on the, it was like a second stage of my, my life. And I, I didn't think that I needed to leave Islam or not be a Muslim. I was like, I have to relearn the faith again in a way. And how, how did you begin to get involved in the work that you now do of sort of, of doing counter-radicalization work? As soon as I left, I'd made it my mission to try and get people out. Because I was like, oh my gosh, this was such a waste of time. It's such a waste of passion. It's such a waste of energy. It's so wrong. It's like misinformation. It's, it's not Islam. And what do you find involved in that work? At one level, you're dealing with ideas. And as you say, for example, countering people's view of Islam. But then there's also all the psychological aspects of people who may be particularly vulnerable, may have been groomed by extremist groups, um, may be very lonely. Do you find that you're kind of wearing multiple hats while you're engaged in this work, that you're sort of at the one level kind of doing theological work almost at another level doing kind of almost therapeutic work what is common is a vulnerability so the whatever that vulnerability is that the extremist group latches on and then kind of uses that as a as a way to recruit people so my vulnerability was i was new to islam and a convert and you know easy an easy target a lot of people with mental health issues um young passionate people who have a cause and want to change the world and have no outlet to do that. Mm. You know, they're very passionate that they're the types of people who are recruited with his, but it wasn't so much violent, but you know, other extremist, violent extremist groups would recruit people with violent tendencies or people mm. who've committed domestic violence, you know, like there's, there's different categories that I saw and um, witnessed. It was around, you know, what is this individual person's need? How do I, do all the counter narrative there I keep saying there's no rule book to it it is about empathizing with them being that you know listening ear and being that support so whatever the extremist groups offering we need to offer but you know it's more sincere and it's it's about that person's well-being as opposed to getting them recruited to a group and then using them as a pawn I mean, I'm fascinated by how long the process takes. I mean, you mentioned earlier that, you know, you've worked with people who've come back from being with ISIS in Syria. And in the process of working with someone in that position, is that a process that would take months or, I mean, is it years long or? Again, each case is different. If you look at the kind of really sophisticated and devious ways in which extremist groups work, especially ISIS, they went straight for the the young and vulnerable. The, the vulnerability of that person was that they were young and naive and easily manipulated. So the radicalization process for someone young would take just a few months. You know, you have to have had like sophisticated psychological tactics in order to get someone from playground to, to ISIS. And I always describe it as the Pied Piper effect. It was like, these kids were just going and they weren't, no, this floating over to the dark side, not knowing what was going on because they are so young and vulnerable. People who have returned, they're still in this state of shock that that even happened to them. They're like, I felt like I was possessed. 
you know, it wasn't me. It was out of character. I never do this. What happened? And they go into this kind of coma state or something. And if they were young and it's, you know, quite new in their heads, it was easier to get them out. But those who were a bit older and had more violent tendencies and had entrenched views, that was far more difficult and took a lot longer. And and sometimes it wasn't even possible to get them out because they were that entrenched. So how is it possible to build resilience to that kind of deliberate, you know, as you say, very sophisticated targeting by extremist groups. I used to work on um, political polarisation issues in my former job as a campaigner. And it was fascinating to look at Cambridge Analytica and how they were very sophisticated in their mashup, if you like, of psychological profiling and then yeah. social media micro-targeting. And that left me with a question of, you know, how would you inoculate communities or even whole societies against this kind of, in a way, weaponization of our own anxieties against us? You know, I know that in your work at Groundswell Project, that's exactly the question you're, you're steering into. So can you outline for us sort of the, you know, what's the core of your approach at Groundswell Project? Well, what we've done is something quite simple in a way, but it's also complicated. Using my experience, if you want to cure something, you have to know that thing that you're curing, whether it's, you know, COVID, you get the vaccination, whether it's extremism, you've got to know it. And that's what I had. I now know to an extent how these groups operate. Mm -hmm. And this in itself is an advantage that I want to take. No amount of academic research or whatever will will get you to that level of people who've had an experience. And that's just a fact. So I bring people who are formers like myself together. You know, it's it's about a collaborative approach. And we know the tactics that they use. So if we know what they're using, how do we counter it with an opposite? And wherever they they lurk, wherever whoever they target, we we get there first and we make sure that we are the voice that that young person hears before they get there. We kind of like want to be a step ahead of the game because we know their tactics now. And, you know, the resilient community was always the the best way forward. If um, a recruiter was going into a community, you know, I'd see a whole load of worshippers from the mosque just chuck those people out. They, you know, they would be like, get out of our mosque or wherever they, they are. They collectively came together and shooed them away. And that's what we need to do. Like they cannot embed themselves in a community that is united and understands who they are. They prey on ignorance and they prey on division and they prey on misinformation. So if that's where they breed or embed themselves, we create the opposite, which is unity, which is understanding, which is education and knowledge and information. So yeah, and if they are pushing hate, we push love. Cheesy as that might sound, it's just we do the opposite of what they do and we do it better than they do. And we're there first. So that's what Groundswell Project is about. It's around highlighting organizations that are doing this work already. So it's not about reinventing the wheel. We've got all of the resources we need. Our logo is find, connect, amplify. So we find who they are at a local level. We connect them together. We amplify a voice of positivity. That has a profound effect on, on the community and people who live there. When they see a danger, it's repelled. And, you know, I've seen that with my own eyes as well. Like when I was part of the group, we were shooed away. There's an incident right now as we speak that's happening in in Golders Green. Mm -hmm. There's a mosque or or an Islamic center that's been wanting to um, openly worship. And they've had a lot of backlash and a lot of people wanting to close it down. Graffiti on on the center. They've employed the mosque buster. There's a guy actually called the mosque buster. And he wants to close down the mosque. And the community beautifully 
have come together from all faiths and backgrounds to oust it. And so that's how you can directly do that kind of counter narrative. And they are starting to succeed. The collective energy of that community and their desire to want to help the Islamic Center is showing such a beautiful, positive message that is contagious. And and, and the people who want to fight back are just not managing to latch on. So we've got to see what the outcome is. The moth buster may well win. We don't know. But the community at large has really tried to push back. And that's what we want to see more of. And in that example that you just gave, is that kind of community immune response, if you like, to do with relationships that already existed in the community? or relationships that have formed in response to this kind of attack, or or a bit of both? I'd say it's a bit of both, because from my work, I've always seen there are like the inherent kind of peace builders within each community. So as much as there are the hate peddlers, there are much, there are many more people who want to build bridges and and to give them a platform and a voice and encouragement and support. The extremists do stuff for free. You know, they're motivated by hate, but these guys also do stuff for free, but they're motivated by love and, and compassion and kindness, which is the antidote. And yeah. so, yeah, we, we kind of harness what is there in the local community already ready and build those pathways to peace. You know, through that platform, we've actually practically identified organizations that are dedicated to peace building. And then a lot of them didn't even know each other exists. But if we create the networks, it gives, you know, makes that support. And and similarly, you know, that's how extremist groups operate as well. They connect with one another with similar ideas, but, you know, they push negativity and we promote pushing the positive. What can people on this call do to support your work or or get involved? Because I know that Groundswell project is very much about sort of creating that inclusive platform where everyone can be part of the solution. Um, What are ways people can get stuck in? Well, I guess we're part of this experimental stage where we want to shine a light. We've created a platform where people can upload their organization themselves. So it'll grow organically. Like my vision and my wish is like, wow, look at all of these peace building organizations in the UK. There are thousands of them. They're doing the good work. And then we call communities to go and support that work. You know, go and find out who your local Somali organization is or your local Bulgarian organization. They're holding an event. Why don't you go along? The pathways to peace are really important because I feel at the heart, people want to do something. They know they're not quite sure how to do it, but if there's a pathway to it, they can easily walk down it. And that's how we want to kind of grow this organically and to create a platform of people who want to, you know, live together and connect because this is what we're going to need after COVID. And we have to naturally connect as humanity, as human beings, and we'll find ways. One last question that I'd love to ask you is, is part of Grants World Project's work about creating space to have sort of challenging or courageous conversations. And, and where I'm coming from in asking that is that some of my work when I was at Avaaz was about supporting in a very small way um, the great get-together that was organised by the Joe Cox Foundation, which I thought was, you know, an amazing national happening, but was also obviously very much designed to be celebratory, just create a kind of space to have a street party, get to know your neighbours a little bit. But what it wasn't designed to do was steer into complicated, sometimes courageous conversations that maybe need to be had in a community where perhaps misunderstandings or local forms of polarization have sort of erupted, where maybe early intervention can kind of defuse those dynamics. But is that part of your work at Groundswell Project? Yes, definitely because we can't shy away from some of the the hot topics and it goes back down to beginnings like a young person has legitimate questions to ask and no one wants to answer them, where do they go? They'll go to the extremist groups because we're not offering that safe space for discussion. 
and we'll shut it down or we'll label them something. And then it's obvious that they'll go somewhere else. That's what will happen naturally. And our, our vision as well is working at a hyper-local level. So you're just changing your own environment. You're not going to go across the world to change it. Just what is in within your own environment, in your own backyard, you know, we could start with that. And when people see that they've made a difference and, you know, there's one community that has tension and now there isn't, because they contributed to helping that dialogue, it's empowering because they've seen a change in front of their own eyes. So yeah, it's about definitely about creating that. And I think society has a part to play. You know, Shamima Begum might seem something not related to the average person who lives in the UK, but we do have a part to play in what happened to, to stop it from happening again, from, you know, making people feel like they have an identity, that they are welcome, that we're all part of a, a British society and a, a larger us. So that's everything for this time. Thanks so much for tuning in. Our next two guests on the show will be Karen Stenner, one of the world's leading experts on the psychology of authoritarianism, and Dave Fleischer, the originator of deep canvassing, an extraordinary new approach to campaigning that aims to win people over through transformational conversations based on empathy, open questions, and deep listening. We'll be recording both of those shows during live webinars. And if you'd like to come along, then we'd love to have you. For details of these and other ways of getting involved, including our regular newsletter, our Larger Us course, and a new program of peer gatherings that we're designing right now, find us at larger.us forward slash get hyphen involved. Hold up. 